If you were to reflect on your leadership journey, would you find any lies or excuses in your story? This week's guest, Flip Flippin, explains how we can identify the lies and how we can write the story of our dreams. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Before we start the interview, I just want to introduce Flip real quick. Flip is the lead author of the New York Times bestseller, The Flip Side. He's the founder of The Flipping Group, one of the fastest growing educator training and team development companies in the United States. Flip, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, it's a treat, Joshua. Thanks for having us. And Flip, I've had the wonderful opportunity to see you twice. I saw you at the Leadworthy conference that you did last year in Texas, and it was in a phenomenal event for kids and their leadership journey. And then also I got to see you. You actually came to our district at the beginning of the year and you spoke on classroom management and restorative practices, which everyone on, who listens to the podcast knows that's a huge passion of mine. After I heard you speak twice, it was my goal in life to get you on my podcast. So it is a true honor to have you here on the Aspire podcast. Well, I, I, I'm just honored that after hearing me twice, you'd still want to hear me again. So, that, <laughs> so thanks for that. <laughs> So Flip, as I do with all my guests, I'd like to talk about leadership journey. Your story is is vast. You've gone through so many different trials and, and helped so many different people in different stages of their life. And so I would love to know about your leadership journey and then how you got involved in education. Yeah, thank, thanks for asking that, Joshua. You know, it's interesting when I was getting out of graduate school, I, I was really trying to figure out what to do with my life, you know, and I I'd been planning on going to Africa and doing research there with a guy named uh, Louis Leakey and kind of the world's leading physical anthropologist. And I wanted to go to Kenya. And, but I'd been doing a lot of my doctoral work on on kids and youth and youth at risk, et cetera. And, and somewhere in there, I just really fell in love with those kids. And I, I'll never forget going in and telling Dr. Kovleski that I was going to start a nonprofit and work with gang kids. And to say that he went crazy would be an understatement. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, he felt like I was throwing my whole life away. But but there was such a such a joy about working with those kids and seeing so much potential, but it wasn't being realized. And I opened a nonprofit free outpatient clinic as a psychotherapist and of course, it didn't cost anything for them to come and see us, but that also meant I had to go raise money and get people to help support it and that sort of thing. And then we grew that up to a pretty large clinic and about 35 clinical staff and probably 500 patients a month. And you were seeing more and more homeless kids then. And, and so I built a 500-acre residential treatment center. And and honestly, Joshua, and I know as an educator, you totally get this, but you know, you come out of school and you're you're not prepared. You totally are not equipped for what you do. And and certainly that was my case in spades. And and so when I started working with these kids, I learned so much from those kids. It was just amazing the things that I learned. And and they and they taught me how to work with at risk adolescents and and so that that was kind of the first part of my career. And and then after sixteen years, well uh, the governor's office called and asked if I would take our programs and put them in schools. And that's how we got started working directly in education. You know, when you're working with high at risk kids, you're up and back and forth from the schools all the time anyway. But that's when we really got involved in education. 
So I got a chance to see the Lead Worthy initiative in hand with my own students, and I'm kind of kicking myself. I just recorded a Aspire mailbag, and that gives my listeners a chance to ask questions, and then me and another educator, we answer those questions. And one of the questions was, how do we teach students how to become great leaders? And so I gave, of course, my answer, but I'm now kicking myself because of your program (laughs) is what my (laughs) students go through, which is the Lead Worthy initiative, and I didn't even speak on that. So for those who are looking to enhance their students' leadership ability, what is Lead Worthy all about? Well, you know, one, one of the things that I learned from the kids is, and these were amazing kids, but they had zero business and professional skills. They, they couldn't walk up and meet a guy or conduct an interview or they couldn't even sit down and order a meal off of a menu. They, had, they just had never done stuff like that. And we got very, very focused on behaviors. And I could, I could tell you some really funny stories about that. But one in particular, I had a group of kids with me one time, and these were all kind of 15 to 17-year-old uh, kids. And about half of them had been thrown out of school. So, But it was a group of seven, and we were out at the boys' ranch. And so we left there, and we came into town to grab lunch. And, and I told them, I said, guys, here's the deal. Whatever it is I do, 30 seconds after I do it, you do it. And they're like, okay, we got it. And because it's heavy behavior-focused. Well, sure enough, we walk in this restaurant and three district judges and the sheriff are sitting at the table right at the door. Well, of course, I knew them all. So I walked over and said, hey, judge, how are you? It's good to see you, Tommy. How are you? It's good to see you, sheriff. You know, well, I walk onto the table and next thing I know is I hear people in the restaurant kind of giggling and I look around and hear these seven young guys all (laughs) introducing themselves to the judge. And we sit down and one of the kids is like, you know, Flip, that judge sent my daddy to prison. And one of the Uh other boys said, hey, hey, dude. Your daddy sent himself to prison. The judge didn't have anything to do with your daddy going to prison. And, you know, it was all skills focused. What are the behaviors you've got to execute? And, you know, how do you shake hands and square up and dress right and go for an interview and those kind of things. And and so then if you look at leadership, you start breaking that down, too. You know, how do you learn to listen to people that totally disagree with you on something that... I mean, it's like right now in Congress, the lack of civility to me is appalling. But, you know, they're elected from the general populace. So that's what we're seeing in our population today. And and so, you know, Joshua, the two places that I think really call us to a higher standard of behavior are the religious organizations in school. Those are the two. Hopefully you get it at home. But Back to your earlier point, it is skills-based, which means it's behaviors. So when you start learning the behavior, it could feel awkward, but the more comfortable you get, the better at it you get. It's now not a behavior, it's a skill. And the way self-confidence is done is that the only thing that raises self-confidence is skill acquisition. It's not me saying, oh, Joshua, you're amazing and talented and gifted and blah, 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 all that stuff we tell everybody. You didn't earn any of those. But when you acquire a skill that you now can do with confidence, your confidence goes up, obviously. So that's our whole take on leadership is what are the critical skills you've got to learn? And then how do you practice those so you become really skilled at using them? So you talked about a boy's ranch. I know that was part of your story also. What was the boy's ranch about and why did you construct that for students? Well, we kept running into homeless kids and, and candidly, I'd I'd never 
seen any homeless kids. I mean, I know when I was growing up, there probably were homeless kids, but their grandparents took them in or somebody else took them in. But we were seeing more and more kids that were coming out of really bad situations. And and Joshua, the interesting thing is that has increased dramatically Mm -hmm. from when I started the Boys Ranch. I know right now, if I asked you, what's one of the major things that you see on your campus? It's going to be kids that are homeless, kids that are in high stress, very high stress environments at home. And and that's not necessarily of their doing, and it may not even be of the parents doing. It could be a single mom that's working two jobs that rarely gets to see her kids. It's a lot of factors, but that's what we saw. And those kids that we took at the ranch were kids that were really broken emotionally. They were hurt. They were angry. You know, it's not that they had mental health issues, but they certainly had emotional health issues. Sure. And they acted them out behaviorally. And, and so that, that's why we built the ranch and staffed it. And it, it still exists today and does phenomenal work. I'm really proud of what they're doing. Yeah, it's an amazing project. So Flip, to kind of correlate some of the things that you've talked about, you know, you had said that teachers coming into the classroom for the first time, they're really not versed as far as classroom management. And then you've put in the factors, like you said, with a homeless child or a student that has gone through a lot of trauma. So how do our young teachers or just teachers in general, where we're seeing a lot of, for instance, like behavior, we assume that they should have, but they don't have. How do we work with our teachers to get them prepared for that classroom management piece? You know, you're saying several things here, Joshua, that I think are really powerful. Mm -hmm. One is that all of us just have expectations. We do. You know, I expect you to be nice to me tonight, for example. And, you know, we just have expectations. And so when we walk in a classroom, we have a certain level of expectation for the children that are going to be in front of us. The problem is, is that if they have no concept of what the expected behaviors are, they don't know how to perform them. Mm -hmm. And so if we have unrealized expectations, that leads to a pretty high level of frustration on our part. And I'll tell you just a quick story, but my wife, Susan, had asked if we could take a couple of the boys from the ranch home for a weekend. I wasn't at the ranch. I'd already started my own company and that sort of thing, but we were still very involved. And so there were these two little boys, six and eight years old, and Susan was like, honey, can we take them for the weekend? They don't have anybody else. And I was like, yeah, we can. And, and so that first weekend, she said the worst thing she could say to me, Joshua, she said, can you take them to the mall? And I was like, oh, my Lord, I, you know, I, this, the thought was frightening. Well, we go, and the little one, Roger, the six-year-old, he crawls up in the middle of one of those round clothing hanging rack deals and starts making sounds and shaking it. And I'm, I'm, Roger, come out. Roger, sweetheart, come out. Roger, sweetheart, come out. You know, I had some expectations for just minimal behavior. Right. And I'm standing there so frustrated. And finally, I said, Roger, don't make me come in there and get you, sweetheart. Come out from under the clothes rack. And his eight-year-old brother pulled on my sleeve and said, Mr. Flip, Roger's, Roger's deaf. Uh, Joshua, I'm telling you, that was such a sobering reality for me. And that, and I think that is exactly what teachers face right now. I'm expecting right. something that the child can't deliver. But as a teacher, you know, I, I need to know how to meet them where they are, to take them where I really think will be best for them. And so I'm going to love them where they are. I'm just going to love them too much to leave them like they are. <laughs> right. I did not know 
that those two boys would 10, 12, 15 years later become two of my adopted sons. And that little boy, Roger, just finished his surgical residency and opened his oh, wow. practice in Lake Houston as a dentist. And Roger Torres Flippin and got four beautiful kids and John. You know, you never know what's going to become of these children. Yeah. And so it's a good ending. Yeah. My heart connects with yours because obviously, you know, I, I have adopted children in my house too. And so yep. I love finding other educators, other leaders that are taking children in that need a home and need love. So I have a lot of respect for you in, in regards to that. And vice um, versa. Oh, thank, well, you thank you so much. I mean, we, you know, there are 160 million kids in the world that need adoption. Mm -hmm. And boy, I'm telling you, just making a little dent is makes a huge dent for that kid. And yeah, we've both done that. I'm glad. Oh, most definitely. When you came and spoke at our district, you talked a lot about restorative practices and finding different ways to help students learn about their decisions and their actions, and maybe taking a different approach than just a punitive measure. So I'm just curious on what kind of your philosophy in regards to restorative practices is. Yeah, that that's really, it's a very thought-provoking question, honestly. You know, if a kid doesn't know math, we teach him math. Yep. If he doesn't know how to behave, we punish him. Yep. I mean, walk me through that. It It doesn't make sense, although mm -hmm. that's the that's kind of the model that I grew up with, and it, yeah. it's the model that we teach so many people. And But when you look at restorative practices, the, the very first thing that I want to think about is what's going on inside that child, because to, to imply that I'm going to restore them to something implies that they maybe were there at one time. And I know that could sound a little paradoxical, but, but the reality is that so many kids, they have no idea what they've done what's wrong. If I asked a child the difference in right and wrong, they they had, don't have a concept of that. I, I remember years ago in, in Leadworthy, Joshua, I gave a kid 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. I said, go down to the store. I want you downstairs. We're in a building. I want you to go downstairs and buy something. When the lady gives you the change, I want you to give her a dollar back saying, ma'am, I think you gave me too much change. And he said, well, what if she didn't? And I said, you still give her the dollar back. And say, ma'am, I think you gave I think you gave me too much change. He came back up and I said, So tell me about that experience. You know what he said? That was stupid. <laughs> and I was like, What was stupid about it? And he said, Man, if she'd given me the wrong change, you think I'd tell her? Why would I tell her? I mean, that's her bad. That's not my bad. Mm -hmm. He had no concept, you know, of this. Well, it it actually wasn't right. Right. And so I think when we think about restorative, we want to start first with let's agree on what's right and wrong. And then when we cross this boundary, how do we fix that? And Joshua, if you will, indulge me for a second. Of course. You know, if you look at bullying programs, for example, we tell the, we tell the victim to come and tell Mr. Joshua yep. that I was, I was bullied by Mr. Sean. And so then you go as the authority, and you talk to Sean, and then you'll coach Sean on how to come and apologize to me. Now, let me tell you what's wrong with that model, because that is the model. Oh, what, yeah. What's wrong with it is that the victim has not been empowered. They've not acquired any skills at all in that process. What they have learned, though, is that when, when something happens to me, I need to centralize power and authority with the authority person and let them handle it and trust that they will, which then when they address the bully, really tells the bully that the victim is disenfranchised 
And the only right. time there's ever going to be a discussion is if the authority is there, mm-hmm. which is exactly where we are right now in our general society. We yes. It's call the police. You know, mm-hmm. well, no, wait, how do I work this out with you? And so the next thing that happens then is that we may have a community meeting in our classroom, and and the students may say, gosh, you know, whenever you tear my room apart and we have to have a room clear, you know, I feel X. Well, just the expression of feeling is not sufficient, Joshua. And I know that's what's in vogue right now. But the reality is, is that the group needs to be able to say, your behavior is not okay with us. It's absolutely not okay with us. We're not good with that. We want you to be part of our group. But if you keep doing this, you won't be part of our... So that the community, actually, that's why I love the thing in the Constitution, we, the people, yeah. this, we, we said this is okay or this is not okay. And the goal was not punitive. The goal was restoration. The goal was reconciliation. The goal was inclusion. The goal is quit behaving in a maladaptive, inappropriate way and be part of our community. And that community has to allow diversity, but it cannot allow wrong behaviors that are destructive to the rest of the community. I mean, that's how our society functions, or is supposed to. (laughs) And that goes with like a stay away agreement or some other, something that is put in place to keep people away instead of actually providing the skills for them to learn yeah. to reconcile. Yeah. So I completely agree. <laughs> 100%. You know, there's there's another part to this too, Joshua. It's so important to me. And, and, and of course, I had to learn this as a young married adult. But I remember one time I was just really rude to Susan and, you know, said some hurtful things to her because I was frustrated about something I was working on. And Later, I I just told her, I said, you know, I'm sorry for how I acted. And I remember she just stood there and looked at me, and I was like, that is not it. And she said to me, honey, what is it that you want? And I was like, well, I I really want your forgiveness. And she's like, well, then why don't you ask for that instead of just saying I'm sorry? And Joshua, that was such an epiphany for me because it took humility on my part to say this is what I did. It was wrong. Will you forgive me for that? And you know, because you teach Leadworthy, that is a skill. That's a behavior that your students have learned to practice in Leadworthy. Because, again, that's a leadership skill. Tell me what would happen if any of our leaders in Congress right now said, you know, that was wrong of me to act that way towards you. Instead of explaining why I acted so stupid or why I was so inappropriate. Well, the government would move in a much better way than it is now. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I, I'm trusting you to raise the next generation of leaders. I'm, so. <laughs> I'm trying, Flip. I really am. <laughs> yeah, I love it. All right. So let's talk about uh, something that's probably in the same vein. I know you've worked, well, you work with hundreds of people in your organization and culture and climate is such a, a vital piece to any organization and how it runs. And if you want it to run smoothly and well, same goes for a school. So for Are aspiring leaders or leaders that are in place right now that are looking to improve their culture or climate, is there any advice that you would give them? Yeah, yeah, I would. Uh, You know, there are a couple of things that are really important. You know, if you tolerate intolerable behavior or you accept unacceptable behavior, don't complain about the outcomes because you create the culture that's immediately around you. And if you're going to be a leader, I would want you to intentionally create that behaviorally. Now, let me... 
give you some thoughts on that. A mission statement does not do that. A value statement doctrine mm-hmm. does not do that. I mean, it's nice, great, it's very well-intentioned, does not do it. What does it is the behaviors that are executed by the leadership on a regular basis with fidelity. We had a, a corporate client in Dubai. It's the largest private equity collapse in the history of the world, by the way. And the senior leader would just, great leader, very charismatic and very socially skilled and graced, but on a somewhat semi-frequent basis would go stark raving nuts, screaming at somebody, cussing them out, abusing them verbally in front of other people. And then he would turn to me and he would say, I don't understand why people tell you things they don't tell me. And I'm like, really? What part of this are you missing? I mean, you can't act that way. Well, but but they need to know who I am. No, they actually, they're seeing who you are. So if you're going to define culture, for example, I know you guys all, you greet your kids every day. You greet them getting off the bus. You greet them on campus. You greet them coming in the classroom. You start classes with good things. You're celebrating the kids. Every behavior you're doing is defining that culture. So if you think about it, there are really three definitive things of culture. It's the artifacts. Like if I walked in your office, like right now, I even see on the screen behind you, and I saw pictures of your kids and your family. And those are those are artifacts, okay? The next one are behaviors that we would see. And then the third one are the stories. What are the stories that get told about Joshua and his family? And those are the things that we use to define culture. So it's it's a powerful thing to intentionally define it. And you do it in your family, you do it in your company, you do it in your classroom, you do it on your campus, et cetera. So Flip, this podcast was originated for aspiring leaders, for those who may not have a position, but are looking to grow in their leadership skills. So for those folks, what were some things in your own journey that were extremely helpful for you to take you to that next level? (laughs) Yeah. So you just made me think of something. My, uh, My first job my first job was in the summers when I was in college. Now, I had started a painting business when I was in high school and all that, but, but I'm talking about where I just went to work for somebody else for a while. And I went to work in the sewer department. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I was, I was the only white guy that had ever been in the sewer department. All the other guys were African-American guys. It was right at the end of segregation. Mm-hmm. And I stood in raw sewage every day. So if you flush the toilet, it hit me in the back. And that's what I did every day. And I'm going to tell you something that I learned from those guys. And I love those men, Joshua. I mean, right up to the day they died, they were some of my dearest friends. Mm -hmm. I have immense respect for them. But here's something that I learned is that if you think there's any task too low for you, you are not fit to lead the person that you're asking to do that task. And there's not anything that I won't do that I would ever ask my team to do. Even now, if I walk through the office and the phone's ringing, I answer the phone. Why would I not answer the phone? I had a a young employee recently uh, say, not in our company, in another company, and they just said, well, that's not my job to do that. And I was like, really? But it's interesting. (laughs) I see people come and they say, you know, how do I make more money? And I'm like, that is not the right question. The right question is, how do I add more value? That's the question. And so for aspiring leaders, I I really think you need to be able to sit there and say, you know what, there's nothing that I won't do if it serves the mission of the company. And when you see that kind of heart in somebody and you see a sense of real drive to make that happen, those are the people in our company that we look at and it's like, yeah, 
those guys are going to the top. They're going to run different parts of the company. Flip, you've got a new book. I know this is not your first book, but you have a new book that came out. It's called Your Third Story. And I would just love to hear a synopsis of the book and how it might help our aspiring leaders. Yeah, thank you. So I always start out with this assumption, Joshua, that there's always more. I don't, oh, yeah. I don't care who you are or what you're doing or anything else. I, I was on the phone today with uh, Dorothy Kasaka, who's the personal advisor to the president of Uganda. And she had just finished the book and she was like, Flip, I'm so excited because there's more. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's the truth for all of us. It doesn't matter who yeah. you are. So, but if I, if I just said, Joshua, tell me about you. Where, where were you born? Where'd you grow up, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you would, you would share those things with me. And I would say, oh, wow, that's awesome. It's certainly part of your life. But you didn't write that story, Joshua. You did not write that story. You were born into that story. Yep. And other people led you in the early parts of that story. You had very little to do with the, that story. So, so then somewhere in adolescence, we begin our second story. And, and that's where we begin to tell ourselves things that may or may not be true, but we tell ourselves those things to make us okay, like we are. Like I, I promised, Joshua, there was a girl that you thought about dating that you did not ask out. <laughs> there is probably a sport that you thought about playing that you chose not to play. There is a trip. There is, you know, everything we do has a story. Everything. Yep. I mean, the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the house you live in, everything you do has a story. The question is, is, is it true or not? And so in adolescence, we lie to ourselves, and we lie to ourselves so that we're okay. Like, I really, really wanted to date a girl in middle school. I thought, golly, if she would just go to this dance, you know, big deal. And uh, But, of course, I didn't ask her. And, but I didn't ask her because we had a baseball game. I mean, it was a baseball game. The problem with that lie is there's not a baseball game every night. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember years later, it was so funny. I, when I was, you know, working on my doctorate, I, I'd presented a paper in D.C. and I got invited to go to this particular very prestigious university and finish my doctorate. And it's several years later, I was 27 years old, uh, not when I got the invite, but when I met my dear friend Nelson. And I hadn't seen him in a while. And he said, oh my gosh, Flip, I haven't seen you. How was your experience at XYZ University? And I was like, oh, Nelson, you know, that was such a great opportunity, but I didn't go. You know, I stayed at A&M and, and he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you know, I stayed at A&M. I mean, I'd never been out of the state and, you know, I didn't have the clothes for that climate and it's too far away and my family didn't want me to go and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I will never forget, Joshua, he looked at me and he said, you are the biggest idiot. Do you really <laughs> believe that stupid stuff? Because see, here's what we do. We tell ourselves the story. We get it where it's believable to us. Then we share it with a few friends. We take it for a walk. And when they agree, we're kind of like, yeah, that's my story. And here's my friend looking at me now when I'm 27 saying, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. And you know, that night, I'll never forget it. I wrote in my journal, I'm not doing that again. I promise you, I probably have. <laughs> I mean, it's just how we are. But I really wanted to catch what I was doing. You know, somebody asked me several years ago, you know, do you want to go to Russia? And I was like, dang right. And they're like, well, have you ever been? Not, not yet. Not yet. And just a couple months after that, I got invited to Russia. 
And I had listened to all the excuses in my head to not go. Well, I went. I went more than once. I had a fellowship in Russia. I've lectured all over Russia. I just got back from Zimbabwe. I've been all over the world. I mean, I could go on about things, but it's not about what I've done. It's about us looking at our lives and not lying to ourselves. Because when you lie to yourself, Joshua, you live a small life. I mean, why are you doing this podcast? You know, nobody's listening to it. It's not going to work. I mean, and why would they listen to you? And, and for sure, why the heck would they listen to me talk to you? You know, there's a thousand things you could tell yourself so that you could not be doing this bigger thing. Yeah. But you, you see, Josh, what you did is you said, you know what? I think I can do that. I think I'm going to do that. By golly, I am going to do that. And that's what the third story is about, is finding the lies in your life. And then writing this next story, which is bigger than any story you could ever imagine. Love it. Well, you, sh- you should. I mean, look at your kids. Yeah. I mean, when you were in high school, did you sit there and think, oh, yeah, we could have five kids. We could adopt kids. I could do. You follow me? Oh, yeah. I hated school. So to be an assistant <laughs> principal now, is it's God's joke. <laughs> There's no way I thought I was going to do that. And to have a podcast and, and do all these other things, yes, I, I think we do fall into our our own lies. And it's very easy and and much like human nature to to believe some of those. I love your book, your third story. I love the message. Flip, you've been an inspiration in my own journey too. And so I want to just thank you for for that wisdom that you present. For my listeners who are maybe listening to you for the first time, how may they connect with you? Oh, they can. Well, they can get the book at your third story on Amazon. And uh, of course, they can go to our website, uh, the Flipping Group or Capturing Kids Hearts is really where most educators would go. They would know about us through that. And it's not so important that they know me, Joshua. What's important to me is that they know what to do with their kids. And that's what we do is try and serve that. And, And Joshua, just a quick comment for your teachers. I cannot say thank you enough because you guys are the first responders. You're the first people to intervene. You're the people that are there loving on them and hugging them and helping them become what they really can become. And in my own life, I owe everything. I owe my car. I owe my family. I owe my books. I know the uh, the fact that I can read and write. I owe everything to my teachers, and I can't be thankful enough. Thank you for everything you do too, Flip. And for those who are listening that want to connect with Flip, I will have all those links in the show notes. Definitely connect with him, connect with his organization, and definitely connect with Lead Worthy for your kids. It's an amazing organization. And Flip, thank you so much for joining me this evening. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Josh.